and I asked some friends that worked in the plants. They were um, engineers designing cars and stuff like that. And I asked them, you know, why won't they make fuel efficient cars? She said, they don't want to retool the factories. And I said, why not? They don't want to spend the money. I was like, "Uh uh-uh, we in trouble. And that was when I started making plans to get out of Detroit because I was like, I'm not working in any factory. And it looked like it's going to go down in a disaster over here. If Because that's, you know, it was like you said, it was the force. It was the thing that made Detroit, the car industry, Chrysler, Ford, General Motors, all those companies, even Nissan and all those people had moved to Michigan. Right. And um, I knew if those industries went out, everybody else's industry would just crumble too. So it did happen. And like I said, I made my way to, you know, out of New York. I went to Atlanta to school and I ended up coming to New York like a year later uh, because I wanted to be in the fashion industry. So did you study in Atlanta the fashion uh, uh, part of it? Yes. I went to the Art Institute of Atlanta and I was horrible at school because all I wanted to do was sew and make clothes. I wasn't interested in the history of it. I was interested in the garment. I was interested in the making of it. Right. So I met a guy and I came to New York for the first time in like 1978, in in August of 1978, and went to the Paradise Garage and that changed my life. (laughs) (laughs) It was the grand opening. So you went, you went, you went, did you get the job? First to come to New York, or did you just come to New York, then look for the job? In the I fact- came to New York and I looked for the job afterwards. Okay. So when then I first came to New York. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then describe describe the beginnings of, of coming up from Atlanta and you come to New York. Who invites you? What happened? All that wonderful I stuff. Came in a power low, like maybe four or five people. We came here for the weekend to go to the opening of the garage. I don't remember ever sleeping. We came up here and um, I remember we went to this guy's house with with one of my friends and um, Pierre. And we went to this guy's house. His name was Andy. And I was looking, I was like, ooh, who is that? And, and I couldn't take my eyes off of him. And But I didn't get to meet him that day, really. I was at his house, but I didn't say anything. And anyway, long story short, we came up here. We went to the garage and... That was really a lot of fun. And um, I never went to sleep. And I had never been to no place like that. Before. That's what I was going to ask you. So can you describe, do you remember what it was like going in for the first time? It was dudes in there. They had rolled up um, uh, T-shirts and it was sawdust on the floor. But the music was ridiculous. It was incredible. I remember we had brought this guy with us. He was a cheerleader or something like that. And we couldn't find him by the end of the night. When we did find him, he had his underwear on top of his head. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, what did he take up in there? But (laughs) what did he get? Because we didn't get none of that. But uh, (laughs) anyway, so I went back to Atlanta and um, I heard that this guy was coming down there to visit. And I was like, Ooh, ooh, I want to know him. Oh, the guy that you started the garage? Yes. The one that we went to his house. Because I don't even remember seeing him in the garage the whole night. 
after he him and my friend was dressing up, I never and next thing I had to visit New York and some of this other guy was coming to visit New York who I had met also when I was here. And I was like, uh-uh. He someone <laughs> might come to my house or whatever. I want to meet him. He's cute. Right. Andy. And I became boyfriends. Mm-hmm. He, stayed, he stayed three months in Atlanta. Oh, wow. And, and I wanted to come to New York. I wanted to come here. Since I was like a teenager, I wanted to go to the high school of fashion. And like, you know, you're not going to New York. I don't trust it. And, you know, it was a whole lot of other things on that my father knew that I did not know. And um, so I here in 1978, I think it was like November. And um, I was staying with my first boyfriend's family. and. Mm-hmm. His mother and I, you know, at first we got along, but we didn't get along. At that, <laughs> let me ask you that question. So, at that time, did your did your mom and dad know that you were that you were gay at that point, or no? Not at all. Not at all. Because you got to explain think, that. I think gone home. You got to explain that because like at that Thanksgiving. Time, during that era, you have to explain how it was still very, you know, it wasn't like it is now where it was more comfortable and socially acceptable. It was people keeping it very hush in those days. Oh, yeah, I was very quiet about it. I didn't want anybody to know. In fact, I was kind of embarrassed that I felt that way and couldn't change it. So anyway, once I was home, I think it was like it was Christmas or Thanksgiving or something like that. And me and my oldest niece used to always look at the boys across the street. And we're looking out the window and say, ooh, look at Delbert. Ooh, he's fine. And my other youngest one said to me, ooh, Uncle Freddie, you gay? You like boys? And I was like, yeah. And she says, oh, I'm going to tell Granny. I was like, do me the favor. Go right ahead. Right. <laughs> Get it out. And she told my mother. And my mother said, Freddie, come downstairs. Sean said, yeah. She said, how is that? I was like, that guy that's calling over, all looking for me all over town. That's my boyfriend. <laughs> and she was like, oh, you'll grow out of it. I was like, no, I won't. It'll never happen. So, they thought you were but they accepted me. They accepted me. That's what she said. She thought I was going to grow out of it. And my brother tried to take, you know, like him and my father was responsible for it. Like, it was because of them. I was like, it has nothing to do with you. <laughs> nothing to do with you at all. So don't give yourself any credit to have nothing to do with you. So oh. me being me is me. But, you know, I had started sewing like when I was like 11 years old and and um, anything that I saw that I wanted, I would try to make it my. And I had a lot of customers and stuff like that and my own stereo equipment and stuff like that. My father bought me a. Um, Phillips turntable and uh, uh, AVC, C, it was like equalizer, like a fat five band equalizer uh, rem- receiver. And I had acoustic research re- speakers and I bought like, uh, what is it called? Um, what was that? Audio Technica, the okay. V15, the top 
of the edge of cartridges. Okay. And the first record I bought for that, I had bought records of that stereo. I bought Bob James one. Ooh. And because I knew that if I got my father into it, that he wouldn't complain when I played other music that he didn't like. <laughs> so I would play that. He loved it. He loved it. Then one day I dropped the speaker from the ceiling in the kitchen. And I was going ready, it was getting ready to go and wash dishes. And my father would be, what the what's going on in here? I was even trying to do electronics when I was a kid. I loved it. I would telephone and take it apart and make speakers out of it, you know, headphones and all kind of crazy stuff. Sure. The only part I could was the focal part of the microphone part. Okay. But I would take the phone apart and do all crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. So when this, okay, so you, you, you get, when do you get your first big job in New York in fashion? Because I know well, it was a DJ. I, was, I went to stay with my Yeah, when I went to stay with my cousins in Brooklyn, uh, my cousin knew some people from her church because I, I didn't know anybody in the fashion industry here. And she found out there were some girls or something that needed a, a, a tailor, a, a sample maker. And they were like across the street from FIT. So I went there. It was like a conglomerate or something like four, five girls, four girls and a guy. And. I went to some and they had clients like Evelyn Champagne King and um, uh, Phyllis Hyman. And I sold for them. Wow. And Phil, they did a fashion show one time and Phyllis Hyman came and performed. And that that was my, you know, I would say one of my first time. Well, not first time, but. Because I knew other uh performers or, or artists from Detroit, because my sister's name used to have a lot of uh, um, cabarets. Right. They would have like, uh, what's his face? Al, uh, Al Hudson and the Soul Partners. I don't know why I'm stumbling today. I guess I'm nervous. Aww. Al Hudson and the Soul Partners. And Alisa Myers and stuff like that. And so I was already introduced to you know, people like that or, you know, artists. They were like normal people to me because everybody was like that in Detroit. You know, it was normal. Right, because you're around but, um, Anyway, they had, they had Evelyn. Yeah, I was around it all my life. So it was like, ooh, another one. Ooh, she can sing better than the other one, okay? Or she don't sing as well as the other one or whatever. So, and my sisters, in fact, when the Supremes came out, my sister, uh, Pina and Maggie, when this girl named Star, they were the group, and they were doing pretty well. And my father didn't want them to go on, so he he didn't want them to go on the road. So they had to stop that group. But around when when they were around, when Diana Ross and the Supremes, you know, were getting started, so was my sisters. I don't remember what they called the group, but they were singing too. Oh, really? Oh, but okay. my father wasn't having anything to do here. Yeah, he wasn't having his girls going out there amongst all these guys or whatever, you know, he didn't trust it at all. So I don't blame him. Um, I worked for those girls in, in, in Manhattan and there was a guy named, named Richard there liking to me. And he's, Oh, you can sew so well and blah, 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 blah. And we became some of the best of friends. He was way older than me, maybe 10, 15 years older than me. 
Okay. We became the best of friends. And um, I met uh, What's Her Face at his house, Sharon Red at his house, and all these other people. Like I said, you, it was always somebody that she was meeting. Just because everybody was involved in it. You know, it was like a lifestyle. And I remember meeting like, some friends that um, they, I think they, what was that, that, that show on Broadway? Cats. I think it was Cats or something like that. Mm-hmm. They were in that Broadway show and I got to meet Greg Hines. I went to his house and, and all these people, you know, you meet all these different stars and stuff like that. And it's like, you've all, in fact, some people, I, in, until I'm talking now, I don't even remember how that met them because I met so many people. Sure. Um, and then anyway, uh, after working for those girls, I found a job because that was like here and there. I was working for those, those girls. They didn't have enough work for me and I needed a steady job. So old job working for Pierre Cardin. Oh, wow. Um, Stoutware. Cardin? Yes. That was my real job was for Pierre Cardin. And, um, it was here in Queens. Where where is that? And I didn't. I'm shocked. Wait a minute. Wait. He was he had an office in Queens. Yeah. Yep. Where? Yep. Yep. Where was he? I live in Long Island City. Long Island City is very close to 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 Manhattan. So you know, I guess they don't want to pay all that rent. They'll you you know they'll have um a showroom in Manhattan, but they'll have the sample room somewhere else. Wow. That wasn't particular. That was for him. So anyway, I like to I like being in the crowd. I like being around people. So I got fired from that job and I got me a job in Manhattan. Because <laughs> I would leave wait, wait. that job and sit on the train. <laughs> Did you say you were fired? Was fired? What happened? What'd you do? <laughs> My boyfriend threw me shade and left me by myself. And I was crying every night and couldn't go to work. <laughs> oh my God. And and I wanted to be around people. I wasn't. I didn't like that going around the corner to work and all that kind of crap. Boring. So I got a job in Manhattan. I worked for many designers. So who was the biggest you know, for, designer? Um, who was the biggest designer that you worked with? And really, it was an impact in some of the stuff that you worked on at that time. I worked. Isaac Mizrahi, I worked with Donna Karen Badgley and Mitchka. I worked for Dee Dee Dominic. I worked for Stephen Barrels. I worked for, uh, I can't even remember this guy's name, Frank Composto. I worked for so many designers, Janet. I can't even tell you there was hundreds of jobs because sometimes they were hiring and they would let you go. And some jobs, like I worked for this company called Charles Bernard Charles. And he had every store you had to buy. And he had like seven sections in every store because he did sportswear, dresses, blouses, active wear, um, petite. They had everything. Um, and, uh, were you finding yourself more doing the women's clothing or the men's clothing for the designers as far as cut and stuff? Mostly women's clothes. Mostly women. M- women's clothes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, B- Bernard Chouse was a big, huge, giant company. 
they won on the on the stock on the stock market. Oh, it wow. was so huge. They had their own. I think what I think I don't know what they call it, but they 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 paid good money, and it was hundreds of employees. Okay, so that, on Eighth Avenue between thirty six and thirty seven. That company's they call that when the company goes public when it's on on the stock market. When yeah. this is all going, yeah. on, are you record shopping and becoming the DJ that we all got to know? When is this all happening? Why you? Yeah, I was going through the garage, and in the fan industry, there was a store called Rock and Soul on Seventh Avenue, <clears throat> and I would go there daily. I would go there for lunchtime, and I would go there after work. I went there so much that people thought I worked there. Free box that came into the store, I was able to open it up and play every record in the store. Most of the time, they wouldn't even let people play their own. They let me play the records because they knew that I was going to sell them also. <laughs> I sold the records. They would open up a box of 25 records and they'd be gone in two seconds flat because I was up there playing the records and, you know, checking them myself. I was a record junkie. A record, record junkie. junkie. Beyond music. That, beyond record junkie, you were a record I can't even say collector. Whore. Whore. <laughs> Everybody, anybody who knows Freddie knows he knew all the tunes. He turned everybody onto the tunes. So between going yeah. to work all day, he'd go then to rock and soul. Was Walter and them working there at that time? Or was that pre before Walter came? Walter worked with um, Benji Turner, Benji Candelario worked here, this guy named Stewart. Um, then Danny Buddha worked in there. All these guys were, they were like, like teenagers working in there. <laughs> in fact, Danny Buddha tells me the story. He says, Oh, you know, if it wasn't for you and Benji, I would be playing crap because y'all would teach me what, and what records were bad and all of this stuff like that. And I was like, Oh, okay. But it's for me, people today that say to me, Oh, I thought you worked in downtown records. Oh, I thought you worked in. Disco Rama, I thought you worked in all the I was a junkie and I was in every store that there what was because I wanted to hang on all the <laughs> what did we call Disco Rama? What was the name we called it? We had a we had a nickname for Disco Rama. Disco drama, everyone. Disco drama. <laughs> when you talk about somebody going record shopping with you, time you would be all the time. We'd be together, like going crazy, going to record labels. It was wild back then. So go ahead. Yeah, uh, all the record labels. I got to meet so many people all the time. In fact, when I was going to the garage, I was sewing, I sold for for Russell Simmons. I mean Russell um Patterson from Black Ivory because he was a friend. He was the 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 he was the the boy of one of my best friends' girlfriend. Uh huh. He working at um. What's the name of that 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 restaurant in the restaurant? Do you remember that restaurant that was in Central Park? Yes, that was um, Tavern on the Green. Tavern on the Green. He worked at Tavern on the Green, and that that girl used to work there too. I can't remember her name, but I'm I went to her with him one time, and I met Russell. And anyway, I ended up making clothes for him and one of the others that performed in the garage. Oh really? You know, and um, I met Michael Brody and all people. Yeah, yep, yep. 
And it was weird too, because when I'm Isaac, um, I don't know how I was hooked up, but I met Vito Bruno and I went to his office for a meeting. You know, he wanted for um Crystal Waters. Hold on, hold on, wait one second. And wait, we wait, went wait, there. Hang on, hang on. Everyone, Vito Bruno was the manager of Crystal Waters and Rome Ricardo, and he had a company called AMPM. And he also was the bouncer at Odyssey 2001 in Brooklyn, that disco club where Sinai Fever. He was all part of that. So go ahead, Freddie. So mm-hmm. you met with Vito Bruno. So we go to his office and we show him some designs. And he says, um, some, um, you know, we're trying to negotiate, you know, what we're going to make and how we're going to get paid. And he said, oh, no, you're going to do it for credit. I was like, not on my time doing nothing for credit because I'm not a pattern maker. And I took the pattern maker with me so we could discuss how this was going to come together. Right happened because it was he was trying to you know he was trying to get something for free and i was like i don't need your credit i need the money because i got a lot of credit my clothes are in every window in new york city okay bergdorf goodman bloomingdale's um Sachs. henry vendell's Saks fifth avenue Lord taylor henry b altman every window in new york my stuff was in and most of the time, I didn't even know because it was the original sample that went in the window. Oh, is that, it it? Is that what happened? Factory piece. Is that what happened? They took the ones yes, that yes, worked yes, on yes. and it went, right in the, it went right in the glass? They would take the, they would take the sample and put them because they were perfect. They wanted to be perfect. They wanted to be able to people to look at, at really closely and see it be flawless, you know? And I'm one of those kind of people. I may not make it flawless for myself, but on my job, it, was, it had to be perfect. And I'm going to tell everyone, I've seen Freddie's work. Freddie's work is absolutely stunning. I've seen his work. So I can't. Now, honey. He does fabulous. <laughs> I just wish he had time for me. I ask him all the time to make me things. He says, I don't have time. <laughs> no, what do you mean? <laughs> Makes these cute, fabulous masks. Look at that. Okay. So Freddie does nice, beautiful crap. work. So, Freddie, I know, I know. So you go into the Paradise Garage, you go into Better Days, because I know you're going to dance with T. Scott and all of them, of course. And you're around Mm -hmm. around all the disco drama, downstairs records, rock and soul. Everybody knows Freddie Turner. Everybody knows you. Every record. Downstairs, Vinyl Mania, uh, Satellite. I mean, that came later. That's Eight later. All dance tracks. High yes. tech. High tech but music. It, you know, Remember high tech? High tech yeah, music. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I think Johnny Johnny Dangerous had not Johnny Dangerous, but Johnny Vicious had a record shop called Beyond the Bass. Mm-hmm. And then it was a it was record shops around Christopher Street that I would go to just to see if they had something nobody because I was I wanted to have all the tunes. When they was going to the garage and they was getting high, I was getting high on the music a little bit of something, but I wanted to have something ironclad in my hand for my money. Yeah, <laughs> so right. I bought a lot of records. I have over four hundred records. So is that been, was, my first record I ever bought. I was gonna say, well, at that time, yeah. were you, were you yet before you even say the first record you bought? Were you starting to think about DJing or were you just collecting? 
It's funny because I was just thinking the other day how somebody was saying about how they used to, or Alice was saying how he um he would organize the records at, at, at his house or at a party and stuff like that, you know, like in his family's house, he would put on the records like 45s or whatever. And I realized I was the same thing. Cause my I've had a, a record player that the records felt dropped down on it. And she would have these Christmas, she would have the family parties in her house. She had no kids. So um I would go and hear. And they would all fall down and play one after the other. And you know, and then I the first player I had was a close and play. Okay. And it vibrated it so it, it shook so much that it it fell off and broke on the floor. Ooh. And I cried. You cried. Because I bought what the first record one of the first records I bought. Yeah, because I would, you know, I wanted to play my records. I wanted music. I was really into it. I you bet. can't even talk to me when I'm listening to music. I know I that. That's one music. thing you lock. I don't hear anything. That's very true. You get zoned out when you're listening to a song, especially when you're feeling it. I know that about you. Mm-hmm. You lock right in. But when is this? Mm-hmm. So where does this? Okay, you're collecting. Yeah. You're working. You're making some nice coins in the fashion industry. You, you got. You, you're doing all the best cuts for most of the design you know for the designers and the artists and all the stores are carrying all your wonderful you know all the stuff that you're working for and then becoming showcase pieces when the hell did you become the dj we all know when does that start i've been trying to w- wait for that moment what it's is funny that? because i had a room one time and i used to do that part and, you know every was his face was talking about oh um um dj spin was talking about Pausing the the cassette player, I learned the the same trick, and everybody was. And then I had Benji Candelario that was editing tape, and he would call me up and ask me all these records that Tony Humphreys was playing. Ooh, record! What's that record? What's that record? In five days, I would find that record. If it was the import, whatever, found that record. And in fa- and in fact, it's funny because um brother married this woman in chicago and his um her last name was turner weird that her last name was turner before he even married her but she was um a cousin to barney a a record distributor in chicago and when i went to chicago i went to that record distributor i told you i was lucky and i got eleanor um um working to the bone he let me buy anything I wanted to buy from that wholesale price. And I brought like 10 copies of that back to New York. Oh, wow. They got that record here yet. Yeah. And, I, you know, I gave them out to my friends or whatever. And because um, it's like, oh, this record is dope. Y'all got to hear this record. This record is the bomb, y'all. And many other records I brought back. But that was the record of that particular time. It was the, the best record of all of them. So, yeah. But I, I had that. I love music. In fact, when I was working, I would have my headphones on okay. with a mixed CD or mixed tape all day long while I was sewing. I would be listening to my music, you know. And then at 12 o'clock, I wouldn't take lunch until one o'clock because I wanted to hear John Robinson. I wanted to hear, okay. uh, what's that guy's name? With the, what's the white guy's name? Bobby Condis? He used to play like a Jamaican. Yeah, Bobby, Bobby, Bobby Condors. Bobby Condors, yes. Yeah, 
Eddie Bone, all these people were playing on the radio at lunchtime. And I weave my seat until they went off. In fact, um, John Robinson so cool that you could call a radio station and ask him what record he was playing. And he would tell you, he would get on the phone and station. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> and I went and closed records. <laughs> and then I started meeting more people in the music industry and more people in the music industry and more people. And then uh, one time I was riding the train. I was hanging out with David Lozada. And David Lozada had a friend came to visit him from Switzerland. And um, he says, oh, Freddie, will you do me a favor? Will you take care of him while I do something else? And I was like, oh. So it was this guy named Mark, Mark Newcomb. And we're riding the subway, and I got my headphones on, and I'm listening to my music, you know, getting down on the subway because you can't stop from moving when you when you playing, you know, good stuff or whatever. So um, he said, can I hear it? So I let him hear it. He's like, oh, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. You should be in Switzerland. And I was like, oh, okay. I paid it no wait, wait, wait. Like, Okay, whatever. What do you mean? Well, talk, he said that you should be in Switzerland. What are you thinking? He's what in your mind. He says you should be in Switzerland. What are you thinking? Talk. It's just going to be talk. And, you know, people always make promises to you or whatever. Three months later, I got a call to go to Switzerland. Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night. Oh, wow. You know, and that was the start of that. Mm -hmm. But I think I had, did I go to England before that? I think I may have gone to England to visit the first time. Yeah. Ms. Rahi was the first time I went to visit England. Yeah. I went to visit England the first, the first time was in 1990. Now let's go on the timeline. And uh, because before mm-hmm. this, in the late 80s, you were already working on productions already in the studio. Yeah. So, I, so come back. It's funny because it, it was like, like, it's funny because um, I was on something, you know, mixing up something, brewing something on the turntables in my house. I was always recreating something because I heard other people do that kind of stuff. But I was like, well, I can do that too. I would put a different acapella on top of another room. And then um, I had an idea. I had this Paul Simpson record called Musical Freedom. And I loved that record, but it had a lot of samples on it. And I was like, one time I had gone to Benji Candelario's house and he was playing a candy stage. I forgot the name of the group. But it was you got the love, and I said, "Oh, I like that at my house." And I mixed the two together. You got the love and musical freedom, and I put her vocal on top of it. It was perfect. So I was like, "I need to edit it down so I can just get the instrumental parts and not all these samples because they had like a million samples on it." So I went to my friend's house. I forgot, I swear to God, I, I feel so bad that I don't remember his name. He used to work for BLS and I went to visit him and we put it on reel to reel. Okay. Recorded the record on reel to reel and edit so I could get the instrumental parts. And I played her vocal on top. On that day, I met Patrick Adams, Patrick Adams lived down the street. I think this guy lived in white plains and Patrick Adams lived down the street from him. Okay. Not Patrick Adams. Other guys. 
No. The guy that used to play at Better Days. Oh, uh, Bruce Forrest. T. Scott lived down the street oh, from him. Oh, T. Scott? Okay. Oh, T. Scott. T. Scott lived down the street from him. And I met T. Scott on that day. I don't think he ever remembered me, but I met him on that day. Anyway, long story short, I went and put that that on a, on an acetate and was playing it all over the place. And people were like, ooh, what's that? What's that? And it's funny because I played so many different parties and that it was just it just happened i wasn't looking for anything it just happened okay. and um anyway long story short they say oh freddie you should press that you should press doing that that's illegal and so i said let me try to because i used to see paul simpson at rock and soul so i told benji candelary benji turner I was like, the next time you see Paul, give him my phone number and tell him I have an idea. So he finally called me and we went up to Chrysalis, which was at Time Warner building, Time Warner. And we went to see Peter Edge. And Peter Edge heard it and he was like, oh, that should have been done two weeks ago. That's a hit. And I was like, oh, my God. Wow. I thought it was a hit myself. When I, this is just dope. This is dope. But when somebody so we like went that tells and, you that, but when someone tells you like that, it just verifies yeah. you're right on, right? Yeah. 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 And it, it was funny because like at the store, like I said, people thought I worked it because I was selling records that were hits all, you know, at, at Rock and Soul and, you know, all the other stores except Vinyl Mania. You couldn't play records in there. So, um, Peter Ed said, y'all should, you sh that should have been out two weeks ago. So we went to the studio and we recorded her vocal again from the acapella on top of it. And they added it, make it clean or whatever. And they put it out as a promo. And Paul had the idea, because I tried to call, call and I called all over the country, cost a fortune back then in those days. To make long distance phone calls. I'm calling all everywhere trying to find Candy Staten. And her husband says, No, she doesn't sing that kind of music anymore. So, what do they call it? <laughs> like the devil's music. Oh, yeah. Well, it's more, that's more concerned, like worldly music when you do music. Yeah. 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 So, um, he, he says, Oh, um, he gets a diva and he has his girlfriend to write the song. So they rewrote the song. And I said, oh, how are you going to clear that? Because, you know, the record, the, the other, the B side's got Candy Satan vocal on it. And on the A side, it's got a diva's vocal. Right. And he says, oh, I'm going to, because I had the same lawyer. And I was like, you know, okay. So anyway, the record came out. It went to, on the top of the pops to number 14. Oh, wow. And I guess Eddie Staten and them found out about it and they yanked it. They yanked it. I'm glad I got my money first. But they yanked <laughs> it. And um, recording studio at that time, um, there was an incident there because um, there were two other people there. 
one from Cool Temple and one from another record label. Okay. And I was like, Paul, when we finish, oh, you don't have my 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 social security number or nothing like that. So how are you gonna pay me? And some guy had to be on the record. And I was like, What? You should be glad to have your name on the record. I was like, This is an A and B conversation. See a way out of it. He wants to fight me. And I was like, okay, let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> so anyway, long story short, that didn't happen. But it was so tacky. And I was so shocked. But, you know, people think you stupid. It's like, oh, it's your first record or whatever. You just supposed to just give it up like a fool. It's like, it's not going to happen. Anyway, long story short, the record came out and it was really big. What the number 14. Congratulations. But Love Station got the case dating. And it became a huge, 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 huge hit. And I was infuriated. I was like, that could have been us. That could have been a major cars, right? As you did this shit right, we could have been paid. Because that record was out in I'm sorry to say, but the music was awful on the original. Her singing was God sent, but the music was awful. That's and um, and anyway, um, yeah, the song was so dope. And it just touched me in such a way. I was like, wow, ooh, this song is. I wasn't a real uh, uh, a Bible thumper or anything like that. I didn't really go to church a lot. But that song touched me. I was like, wow. Oof. It was almost like, like you went to church when you heard that song. Mm-hmm. Like, wow. Maybe it's too much. So and you knew, and you that. knew, anyway. you knew when you were doing that at that time. You knew it was big before it was even signed. You said exactly. this would work, right? Exactly. This is going to work. This is hot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. And people <laughs> have been hearing it, but I wouldn't give it to anybody. I had an acetate. I still have that acetate. But um, yeah. <laughs> but it was so you know it was so crazy for Paul. I was like, Paul, dude, you should do better than this because I knew that when you take somebody else's stuff and you don't pay them for it, ain't nothing good going to happen for you. Sure. That's just not right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like somehow, some way you're going to pay, you know, so I never tried to do that. So, you know. So right after that, I mean, I guess now people know if they don't know you, now they know you have a record out and things are starting Mm -hmm. to pop, right? So when do you leave the industry completely? Like when is that, you know, that transition? In 1990, 1992, I left the fashion industry, but I was still doing sample different designers and stuff like that in my house. I would, you know, they, they, they give me a bunch of sample whatever, and I would charge like $125 per sample. And instead of making it in two, three days overnight, you sure. know, so I would collect all this money until they start asking for social security numbers and all that kind of crazy stuff. And I was like, but this is a three day job that you're not paying me for. I'm doing it in my house with my, my equipment, my electricity, my space, my sewing machine, my sure. iron, everything. I'm not giving you no social security number because you $400 for this sample. So I did that for a long time, though, until I, you know, I got sick of them asking me for my social security number, you know, 
Mm-hmm. And then I think I started going to San Francisco and places like that. Right. Yeah, I, I started going to San Francisco. I was playing for this, these these kids through Frankie Feliciano. Um, I was playing um, this place called Tilt, and and then they had another party called Lift, and we would go there two weeks. Frankie would go there for two weeks, and then I weeks, and we would do these parties. And then I met uh, like all these other people. Like I met. Um, Pete Olive, uh, Pete Avila. Peter and he had me playing at Red Zone. And I played, yeah, Pete Avila. And I played at Red Zone and I played with him. And um, I played at 1015 Fosen and I played at Rubai. And the end up was the end up. The end up was oh, on fire. Yes. As many times. I love because you could really play anything you wanted in there and they were really receptible you know to whatever you were playing they really enjoyed and you could feel it in the room it was fire in there right you know so and then you know then it's funny because like you could go to a record shop and you can meet anybody in the room i met so many people in record shops like my first uh invitation to play in germany i met uh my friend fabian tank at uh um <clears throat> dance tracks right we're in dance tracks and you know i'm collecting records i'm buying records and i'm like this guy is like he loved everything i picked you know i would because if people records it's like oh check this out check this out i like this record this record is dope mm-hmm. you have to have this record you have to have this record. so i met him and come to find out he was like a what did he call himself? He's an artist himself. And he was involved in this group that they gave a lot of like that. And I introduced you to them. And um, anyway. Um, yes, I remember. Yes. They brought me over to play. Yeah. They brought me over to play. They used to have parties at museums. And I did like um, MTV over there. I did um, uh, TV awards. Um then they would have club parties. I did a lot of parties with them in Switzerland. I played a lot of places in Basel and in um, Zurich and Geneva and Lausanne. Everywhere, it's easy to re- to try to remember all these things because all these things were going on at the same time. Yes, you know, and and they weren't planned anyway. They just happened, you know, organically. They just happened. But what music you know, they into? What was the music that they were into that you were playing to them? Because you're bringing New York flavor. So describe what you would be playing at that time. You know the musical stylings of house music, of course. But what was what was the most of your record collection at that time consisting of? Where? When you were traveling, like you said, you went over because I bought all kind of records. I know, I know in Switzerland, some places, like if you played in like in the, in the German part of Switzerland, they dance from the, from the foot, not from the hip. And you play from the, in the, in the, in the, in the French part of Germany, they dance from the hip and you could play. But the, the thing is, is in, in the French part, if you played in Geneva, it was completely different than when you played in Lausanne. If you played in, in Geneva, mm-hmm. I think they were more trans. So you had to play like a more poppy, more and more aggressive. And like in Lausanne, you can play like you was playing weird because they loved it. I mean, like I felt like I was in Brooklyn 
with hills because it's weird. It was like I felt like I was in Brooklyn because there were so many different kinds of people all together. Oh wow! Really down to earth. Yeah, yeah. Mandrex had a record shop there. The guy who uh, had Liquid Groove and uh, they Stephanie, did the Billy you record. You talk about Stephanie. Ain't nobody business. Stephanie Mandrex. And um, I did a lot of radio shows there. I did like Cool Artois. And I played with Mr. Mike. And um, oof, Jamie Lewis and, and oof, countless people. And they're going off to Germany and playing all those places over there. It's, it's crazy. Stuff happened. I can't even remember sometimes. Sometimes one story will lead into another story that leads into another story that open up another um, situation. Yeah, you be, you be which I loved. Like, you I loved. became like the, the star of Switzerland for the Americans. Like you were the most I knew that was going at that time, playing a hell of a lot in Switzerland. And the funny thing is, is that they had all these magazines and stuff over there. Like, um, I can't even remember the name of them, but they would never talk about me or, or Americans in those magazines. Oh, really? They were always on uh, the Swiss term, the DJs, even though we were the ones who were really playing and, 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 and turning the places out and like at, at the mad and stuff like that in Lausanne. I mean, like that was a major club for them, Lausanne. They they had like a membership to go to that club, and that club was huge. Wow. I remember one time I went to play there, and they had somebody else open up for me, and the the owner came to me and she says, "Oh no, honey, pay for you to play. We don't want to hear nobody else play. We want to hear you play." <laughs> and I was like, "Okay." All right. <laughs> we don't want to hear nobody else playing. We want to hear you play. 